Was it good? Was it bad? What was it like working with him, working with her? You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater, too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On Backstage Babble. Hi, this is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theatre industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. And today I am thrilled to announce my episode with Broadway and cabaret star Sally Mays. Sally Mays was Tony-nominated for her performance in She Loves Me, and also appeared on Broadway in Urban Cowboy, Welcome to the Club, and Steel Magnolias. She's also recorded five solo albums of her work, and on Saturday, December 2nd at 9.30pm, she will be singing the songs of her storied career in Now and Then at the Green Room 42. Get your tickets to that show at the link in the episode description. And now, without further ado, here's Sally Mays. Well, I'm looking forward to your show. Congratulations. I'm very excited about it. I think it's going to be terrific. Uh, you know, uh, we've put together, I, I did a poll on Facebook a few months ago, like, if Miss Bird is a given, what song of mine would you like to hear if I did a thing? And so I took all those down. And so the top three are in the show. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so I, it's, and I call it now and then because it's a lot of stuff from, you know, albums that I did or shows that I did. And even there's a little like pastiche moment that kind of plays homage to the fact that I was a child performer. And then there's a lot of now too. So I, I, you know, so it is now and then, and, um, this is the first one of a series. Uh, now and then we call it the teaser because it's kind of a hodgepodge and there are a, a lot of different songs from a lot of different things that I've done. And the next one is going to be Now and Then Broadway. And then the third one will be Now and Then Jazz American Songbook. And then the last one will, will be um, Stories stories and originals and so we're going to do four of them i may be crazy to try to do four shows <laughs> four different shows but we're going to do it because i have been doing concerts out and about you know um and everywhere i go it's a different thing like if i'm in florida i figure they're going to be older people so i pull my american songbook standards and my jazz out and if i'm going to a college campus to do a theater you know a theater department i pull out all my broadway and if i'm going to a festival i'll pull out my story songs and my country and my originals and I realized doing that, because, you know, when you do an album or you do a show, you do it and then you stick the, the the charts in a file cabinet and you pull the ones that are like maybe a comedy song or a big ballad or something that was your favorite. But the rest of them just kind of sit there. And so I have years and years of arrangements that are beautiful. And I'm not even talking about me. I'm talking about the arrangements and and because I've had wonderful people like Mike Grinzi and Billy Stritch and Patrick Brady and Ted Firth. And it's like, 
I have all this beautiful stuff. And I realized doing these concerts out and about that I can still sing them pretty much. I may have to lower a few things, but, but, um, but I wanted to sing them again. And I thought, you know, they really need to be sung while I can still do it. And, you know, before, before they put me in the home. (laughs) And so that's what I'm doing. And I think it's going to be so much fun. And if anybody was ever a Sally Mays fan, and I honestly don't know how many of them there are out there anymore, but if, if um, there was ever a Sally Mays fan and they want to see this, they should come, come listen because it's going to be fun. It's going to be a romp. I'm sure there are lots of fans out there. Well, I, I, I think I do. Okay. I mean, you know, it's like, I was doing another interview with somebody and they were asking me where I went and I said, well, you know, I, I don't know what you're talking about because I never stopped. I never stopped just because I'm not working in New York. Doesn't mean I'm not working. I've, I've been working nonstop pretty much for the last 10 years. And I come into New York and do things. I just haven't done my own show, you know, um, my own cabaret act or my own concert act. And so, you know, this is the first one in a while and it's, so it's special. And, uh, uh, but, but I never stopped working. I never, I've always had my hand in. I do a lot of different things. I like to do a lot of, I like to wear a lot of different hats. I like to teach and I like to direct and I like to write and writing has become really important to me in the last 10 years or so. And I've written a play uh, with music that, you know, I have producers. And so we're going to see what happens with that. And so, you know, it's like, I, I, I will never stop. <laughs> so, yes. You know, I, I just, um, I just, I don't live in the city now. I live above the city. And so, you know, I come in, but it's just not, I'm not out and about all the time. So. Right. Yeah. Well, so I'd love to now go back to ask a little more about what you mentioned about being a child performer and how did you (laughs) first, how did you first start with getting interested in performing and all that? Well, my dad was a jazz guitarist down in Texas and he was really, he loved music more than anything else in the world. And he had four kids. And so he also was a, a, a superintendent of schools, a principal. He did a lot of different things, you know. And so the music became kind of secondary to taking care of his family. But from the time that I could phonate, I mean, one of my first memories is standing in front of him, his 1955 Johnny Johnny Smith Guild guitar. And it's a blonde guitar with like, you know, it's it's with the with gold pickups and it's just gorgeous. And I remember standing in front of that from the time I was a little girl while he would teach me songs. And he never taught me to sing like a child. He taught me to sing like an adult. And I had this big belt voice. And so that's what started it. And so I was kind of the local kid. I mean, I grew up in East Texas and um, this is so long. I'm sorry. Um, There was a, there was a, an entrepreneur there who bought up all the land around this area where they were going to put in a land, a, 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 a man-made lake, Lake Livingston. And so he had, he would have these barbecues on the weekends to sell plots of land and he brought in Nashville stars and he would bring me to be the local kid. And so I did that. And there was a place around there called Johnny Morrison's Hay Barn where they kind of did the same thing. And so I was singing gigs from the time I was able to 
talk. I mean, you know, and my mother, my mother did my hair. Oh my God. <laughs> Horrible. And then, and, and, and my grandmother made my clothes and uh, I hope we're going to be able to put some slides up because they're funny and I've been putting them all over Facebook anyway, but and I wasn't tall enough to reach any mic stand that they could rig. And so they would put me on a box in front of the mic stand, you know, and uh, and my dad was my orchestra. My dad played the guitar for me and he taught me to sing. And so I was doing gigs from the time I was about five years old. And by the time I was seven, I had opened for, oh, my gosh, Merle Travis and Merle Haggard and and George Jones and. And Roy Acuff. And I mean, you know, it was like all these people from like the 60s that were like big country entertainers. And so it was a very interesting childhood. They wouldn't let me go to Nashville because some of the people wanted to take me to Nashville, you know, and, and record me. And they wouldn't let me go because they wanted me to have a normal childhood. <laughs> but but I I I've been gigging since I was basically about four or five years old <laughs> so, right. yeah so you know and uh so if I don't have fear on stage and that's something that I really hardly ever have to deal with it that's why because I'm I'm more comfortable on stage oftentimes than I am in real life you know it's <laughs> I, I like being on stage that's my that's my zone you know <laughs> that's my teddy bear and <laughs> you know, and my, and my cushy that I sleep on, you know, it's like, I love the stage. Mm -hmm. And so I can't wait to get on it. And so that, that, and it comes from that. Yes. I also, on the other side of that was having anxiety dreams from the time I was about <laughs> three years old. And so that's a whole other conversation, but yeah, yeah, I, I was a child performer and it was really fun, you know? Yes. And, you know, it, this will make you laugh when I was uh, my my repertoire. <laughs> <laughs> I was five, so it was limited, you know, but the songs are funny because I, I did for once in my life. I did <laughs> uh, goody, goody. Uh, uh, Ma, he's making eyes at me. <laughs> what did I have that I don't have? I mean, all of these songs that, you know, are very adult songs. And I would always do the adult versions of them. I would do Edie Gourmet's arrangement or, you know, uh, Connie Francis or Ella Fitzgerald or whoever, but it was, and, and it, I had so much fun and that's just the way that I learned to work. And so, I mean, and then when I, when I grew up and found arrangers, I could bring my own ideas into the party and now I have my own arrangements you know so I don't I don't I haven't copied anybody since I was a little girl but you know it's like it's really nice to to have that background because it it teaches you everything you need to know about what is next and what needs to happen in an arrangement and what needs to happen in your show and and you know after doing it for so many years it's so fun to just kind of plug everything in where you need it and oh I need to move this here and I want to do this and I'm gonna oh I have to write a, a, a intro for that and maybe I won't say anything here and oh a comedy number needs to go here it's like it's you know it's crazy but it's really not rocket science it's after you've done it for a while you figure it out you know and right. so I love doing that yes and so what made you decide in growing up to pursue a career in musical theater rather than as a recording artist or well 
you know, I've always been that girl that I can do a lot of things and I like to do a lot of things and I like to sing a lot of different kinds of music. And, and so I kind of, when a window opens, I just go through it. I mean, you know, when I moved to New York, I was planning to be the next Carol King. I wasn't planning to be on Broadway, even though I had gone to school, I'd gone to drama school in, in Houston, and I had learned all of this stuff from a wonderful teacher named Cecil Pickett. And, um, and I, I knew what I was doing, and I'd done a lot of productions. But really, at that point in my life, I was writing songs, and I had a band, and I was living in Dallas, Texas, and I was singing jingles, and so I was doing a lot of recording. And when I moved to New York, I thought that's the direction I was going. And then I got an audition for Cy Coleman, and I it was my first audition, and I got the job. And so, oh, well, I'm on Broadway. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so I kind of went that direction, you know, because that's where the door opened up. And I didn't really get back to the songwriting for a long time. I never stopped writing, but I, I, it wasn't something that I was pitching and trying to do all the time. And so... Uh, and now I I find that it's something as I get older that I love even more than I did when I was young. And so I'm doing a lot of it. And it's really, it's really satisfying to me, you know? Yes. And what was it like to work with Cy Coleman on Welcome to the Club? And <laughs> well, he was so funny. Um I I went in, I, I got the audition because I was singing at a club downtown called 88s and living on my friend Irv Rabel's couch, and he owned the club. And uh, and a casting director called him and said, I'm looking for a dumb blonde. <laughs> and he said, I got a dumb blonde for you. <laughs> and so he came to see my show like a week later, and he had already cast the role, and they decided to go black with the role, and they'd cast Harry White, and my friend Harry White. And so uh, they said, but we need a swing. So why don't you come in for the swing? And so I went in and I auditioned and I was on the stage of the music box and I sang and uh, Cy came up to the, to the edge of the stage and he said, can you sing any country? And I said, yeah. Uh, and I looked at the piano player and I said, I, do you know crazy? And Cy said, I do. And he jumped up on the stage <laughs> and he came and moved the guy off the bench. So Cy Coleman played my Broadway audition. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> and uh, and I and I sang crazy and he said, well, do you want to do this? And I said, yeah. And so I got the job and then I was covering Terry White <laughs> and then uh, like the, and and another girl who was tall, thin, blonde named Sharon Scruggs. And um, during the rehearsal process, they decided that Sharon was not really right for what they were looking for. And so they they put me on. It's not your job. Just go on. We haven't given you the job, but, and I went on and it was fun. And I remember walking out and, <laughs> and saying my first line, which was something like jailer, lock me up in leg irons and throw away the key. Cause she was a country singer stuck in the alimony jail. And, um, uh, it got this big laugh and it kind of rolled down from the back of the house. And I thought, Oh my God. And I was hooked. And so I, I was hooked. And so then I started going in that direction. And Cy was always so wonderful to me. And, um, you know, that show didn't last for very long because it was about an alimony jail. <laughs> but um, it was a great part for me. And they ended up giving me the role. 
And the day after it closed, I went and sang for Richard Maltby at his house and he cast me in Closer Than Ever. And when, after it opened and it was a big hit, Cy came with the producers from Welcome to the Club and a stretch limo and a bottle of champagne and made a big deal about it. And it was so amazing to me. And so we were friends, you know, uh, I didn't see him that often and he would, but he was always in my corner and I just loved mm. him dearly. And um, it, it, it was, it was a huge break and I'm very grateful to him, you know? Yes. And what was the process like of figuring out sort of what type of roles would appeal to you within musical theater? Oh, you know, that's so funny because I don't think, I don't think that I get to say, <laughs> I mean, I know what I would like to do, but you know, the, the casting machine in New York city is very, very clear that they want to put you in a box they figure out and it, and, it, and it changed for me two or three times because first of all I was because I played a country singer who was locked in an alimony jail oh she's she's southern she's country so any southern roles and then I did closer than ever and it was like oh she's great with reviews let's give her comedy roles and reviews you know and then when I did she loves me it was like oh she's a she's a, a bad girl with a heart of gold and so you know so they would they kept trying to to type me and I would not let them. And, and I, I, I just didn't have any interest in playing the same role over and over again. And so I always went in a different direction. And, um, I would say that that's, that's kind of been my niche though, is the, uh, is the dumb blonde smart cookie. That's right. what I call her. And, uh, because she kind of comes off as a little dippy and a little, cuckoo and and you know maybe a little bit dumb but she's not <laughs> and so I really enjoy that kind of role so that's probably where I've ended up but I've I try to do all kinds of different roles if they'll let me you know but they but they are real funny about it you know with 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 typing and so it's always been a struggle and what you know and I studied to do plays you know in college and when they found out I could sing, it became musicals. And I was like, but I still want to do plays. And I got to New York and I couldn't do plays for a long time. They wouldn't see me for plays. And finally, you know, I have done a few and I do a lot now that I'm not working so much in New York, but it's like, it's, I just don't like typing because I think that everybody is more than what you, this whole persona that you're looking at might be, what you might think it would be, right? And I'd be curious to know with these first two shows, one of which was very short-lived and one of which was a big success, do you find that you often can tell sort of about how long a show will run? Oh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I was in one of the arguably biggest flops of, you know, <laughs> on Broadway, uh, a show called Urban Cowboy. And I mean, it got panned and, and the New York times just kept re-reviewing it. And every show they would review, they'd mention us and how horrible we were, you know? <laughs> and, and, I, and so I, we were supposed to close and then the producers just dug their heels in and said, no, we're going to keep it open. And they did. And so I don't think that you, I mean, I think you can pretty much guess. I mean, I knew I remember somebody came to my dressing room with a card and said, 
oh, good show tonight. And what do you think is going to happen? And I looked at him and I said, do you want me to be positive or do you want me to be honest? And he, <laughs> said, he said, oh, I want you to be honest. And I said, honey, don't read the papers tomorrow. <laughs> They're going to kill us. And he went, oh, I don't think so. And I said, well, have a good show. <laughs> and the next day it was just like, oh my God. And so, I mean, I do have a pretty good idea when that's going to happen, but I've also invested everything I've got into roles and into shows and with my heart and my soul and my work. And then they didn't do well. And I've never really understood why. And so, you know, and sometimes it's just timing and sometimes it's, they're not wanting that at this particular time in New York. I don't know. I don't know. It's very uh, weird. Now I think there's a trend going on that it doesn't matter how good it is. It's like we're all addicted to these phones and these screens and it's always what's the next new thing? Shiny, pretty. I'm going towards that. And so there'll be a wonderful show and it'll open and it'll get rave reviews, but it doesn't last very long. And so the 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 runs of Broadway shows I'm finding are a lot shorter than they used to be, you know, except for like, you know, Wicked and Hamilton and stuff like that, you know, Phantom. But it's like, for the most part, you see something opened and even when it gets raves, you know, it doesn't necessarily stay open for a long time. Even when it wins Tony, sometimes it doesn't necessarily stay open for a long time. And that's that's different. And I think it's because the attention span of the audience has changed, you know. So that's just my theory, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> right, right. And I'd be curious to know, with a show like Closer Than Ever, what do you like about this sort of review format? Do you find it to be more similar to Cabaret? or? No, I don't think it's like Cabaret, uh, because it's, it's, you know, in Cabaret, it's different every single night. You know, you ad lib, or you you know, you change things around. I mean, I do anyway, because I get bored. But like with a show, it's pretty set the way it's going to go. And uh, Closer Than Ever was wonderful because there was this music that nobody knew. There were trunk songs for the most part. I think he wrote Back on Bass for me when he found out I could scat sing. And then they wrote uh, I'll Get Up Tomorrow Morning for Richard Munes. And um it, 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 this music was so sophisticated and so funny and so beautiful. I mean, David Shire is one of, oh my God, he's such a brilliant composer and his music is so glorious. And then Richard, the little wordsmith over there, just yeah. making it so funny and so brilliant. And so it was so much fun to do. And when you have material like that, you don't get tired of it, you know, you, because there's, I call it peeling the onion. You always have another layer to peel back, right? And when you have gone down to the nub of the onion, that's when you know it's time to go do another show. <laughs> but it takes a long time. And, uh, so I, I love, I love the complexity of the songs. I loved my cast. It's where I met my husband. It's where I met my musical director for 25 years before he retired, Patrick Brady. And I mean, a lot of really wonderful things happened because of that show. So I'm very grateful to it. And I loved every minute of it. And I still sing, um, well, I do miss Bird. 
And every now and then Lynn and I get together and sing the duet somewhere. And um, I do, I have an arrangement that Patrick did for me of like a baby. That's glorious. I mean, I, I might pull that out at some point during this series. Um, but yeah, it's like, I, that music is just untouchable. It's wonderful. So. And how did she loves me first come about? Uh, I was on the way to Los Angeles for pilot season. I had already like booked my ticket and my agent called Barry Douglas called me and he said, I have an audition for you and I know you're going out for pilot season, but I really think that you need to audition for this. I have a feeling. And I was like, okay, what is it? And so he told me it was a revival of She Loves Me, which I was not very familiar with, actually. And I mean, I knew Sheldon and Jerry, and I, I knew their work, of course, but I didn't know that show very well. I knew it was Barbara Cook's big show, and I knew Vanilla Ice Cream, but that's really all I knew about it. And so I was going in for Alona, and so I, I because she tells a story on stage. And so I thought, well, I'm going to find a story song that's like that and not sing the song itself. And so I did on the SS Bernard Cone Ooh. and Jason Robert Brown played my audition <laughs> and uh, they kept calling me back. I went in five times for that. I learned all the scenes and all the songs and I was about, to, I got a call from my agent who said, you know, they really want Andrea Martin for the role, but she's tied up with a pilot that she's done and she's waiting to find out if they're going to like take it at CBS. And so can you just hold on a little bit? And I went, I'm going to LA, bye. <laughs> and so, and so um, about an hour later and I don't really know what happened. I don't know whether Andrea said I can't do it or whether Scott decided not to wait or what, but about, about an hour later, I got a call from Scott Ellis and he said, we would like for you to play Alona in our production of she loves me. And I said, okay. And so that's how it happened. And it was such a great acting challenge because, um, you know, she's on stage for, a long time <laughs> and doesn't say anything, you know, except for the thank you. Thank you. Please call again. Do call again. Thank you. And uh, she's just sitting there. And so that means that you have to create an inner life and, you know, it, uh, which is just so much fun to do. And, you know, you have to score the whole thing. And so you have to make it real that you're on stage for, you know, 45 minutes and, not doing anything, but you're completely busy and completely have a life, you know, and without it being, you know, drawing focus or anything. And so I loved that challenge. I loved working with Boyd Gaines, who is a genius. I love that entire cast. I thought it was the finest ensemble on Broadway. I would work with any of them again in a heartbeat. They're just all wonderful. And we had so much fun and it was such a beautiful, you know, when it's a show about love, I mean, there's something kind of sweet and gooey about it, and it kind of sticks to you because it's about love. So I I love that show. I mean, you know, people ask me what my favorite thing that I ever did was, and I always say the next thing. But uh, that was that was a big one because, oh my goodness, it was it was delightful to work with the. I mean, you know, nobody does this to be famous. Nobody does this 
you know, to, to get Tony nominations. Everybody does this for the work because we love the work. We love to play off of each other and we love to have partners who are giving us what we're giving. And it's, it was just, it was just perfect. I love that show. Oh, yes. And were uh, Sheldon Harnick or Barbara Cook sort of around the rehearsal process? And did they? Oh, Sheldon was there. Sheldon was there. Sheldon would give me notes. He was so funny. <laughs> and he would, he did, he did the library song for me once. And it was amazing. It's like, it's very informative to have the author do it for you, you know? And yeah, they were, Jerry and Sheldon were around for the entire process. And Barbara Cook came to one of, I think she came to, she didn't come to the opening. She came to one of the previews and she was lovely. Um, you know, I never really knew her that well, but she was hilarious and bawdy and salty and funny. And I mean, I did like, you know, I'd be on a, on a, a benefit evening or, you know, Sheldon Harnick's birthday party or something like, you know, uh, I did a, I did a gig at the, at the Rose room with, for David Zippel of David Zippel songs. And I shared a dressing room with her and she was amazing and so funny and so genius. And the last time that I ever heard her sing was for Sheldon's 90th birthday party. And she was very frail at that point. And they brought her in, in a wheelchair and she stood up and she didn't get up on the stage. She stood next to the piano on the floor and they handed her a mic and she sang, will he like me? And it was like, she was 16 years old and it was, it was so moving and so beautiful. And I, I she's, she was one of our giants, wasn't she? Yes. And I got to be in the room with her. I mean, you know, that's, that's, I got to know her and I got to be in the room with her. So it was kind of amazing. You know, I, I when I think about, the cool things about this business. I think about, you know, I'm always very, very aware of whose shoulders I'm standing on at all times. And I, I give props to all of them. And, you know, I was lucky to come up in New York at the time when I did. And I, you know, I have so many people who have inspired me and who I love and, you know, and they were still here when I came, you know? And so, it makes me really grateful for everything that's happened and for all the opportunities that I've had in this business. What, what was the experience like of being Tony nominated? Uh, I, it was kind of, it was great. It was kind of like being in a blender. <laughs> I called it the Tony blender because you were so busy. You were doing eight shows a week, which is not nothing. I mean, you know, I know people think that we're all very, you know, spoiled and we don't have to work very hard, but that's hard work. <laughs> and your yes. whole day is about that show. And so uh, I'm doing eight shows a week. And then there were all these things, all these Tony related things that you had to go to. And then you had to go be fitted for your dress. And then you had, to, and it was wonderful and it was exciting. And I was so happy, but at the same time, I was exhausted. It was like being in a blur, you know, so, but great, a great blender. Yes. A great blender of wonderful margaritas. That's what I'd say. <laughs> and what to you makes an ideal director to work with? Of course, you were with Scott Ellis there and uh, Jason Moore later on and so many others. I think that a director who trusts his actors is the most important thing. I think that the ones that have been 
really successful, in my opinion, are the ones that don't like put their thumb on you and really drive you crazy. It's the ones that kind of tell you what they want and then get out of the way and let you do it. Right. And then if there's something else that they want, they come and they tell you, or if they want to put something specific somewhere, they come and they tell you, but they trust their actors to do the, do the job that they were hired to do, because that's what this is. It's a contract. You know, my job as an actor is to make the director and the producer and the writer's viewpoint come to life. And to do their vision of what this show is. And so in order to do that, you have to trust me and you have to, and that's, and so I think casting is the more important thing. And if you have a great cast, then you just trust your actors, you know, and, you know, it's really fun to watch a good director work with really great actors. It's so much fun to watch because it's just, they, they have this unspoken language that they share and it's, it's amazing. So that's for me, that's what it is. And another great director who you worked with was Gene Sachs on Bye Bye Birdie. And <laughs> what was that like of being with him and on screen? And Well, you know, it was like, I was so, I was just thrilled to be at that party. You know, it was like I was in town and I get this call saying Gene Sachs and Anne Reinking would like to have a meeting with you. Not an audition, just a meeting. And I was like, okay. And so I went and I walked in the room and they'd say, well, we're doing Bye Bye Birdie for television. And we were wondering if perhaps you would like to play Mrs. McAvee. And I was like, well, do you need me to audition? Do you need me to sing? I didn't bring my book. And they were like, oh, no, no, no. We just we just want you to do this job. And I was like, okay. And so it was like this amazing gift. And a show that you worked on for a long time was Pete and Keeley. And mm -hmm. what was your kind of process like with that role and seeing it through different versions? And Well, um, my musical director, Patrick Brady, was was the guy on that, right? He wrote the original songs and he did all the arrangements on it and was a huge part of that. So he told me that they were doing this. And and one afternoon, they invited me and George Dvorsky over to Patrick's apartment. And it was Mark Waldrop and Jim Heineman. Jim Heineman wrote the book and Mark Waldrop was the director and wrote the special lyrics, right, for the original songs. And so... We went over to his apartment and we sat, they had chairs, we sat and and they got up and they did parts of the show for us and sang some of the songs and stuff. And we were sitting there watching it. And then they said, do you think this would be something that you would want to do? And I already knew that they wanted me to do it, but George didn't know. And so then they had us like sing a little bit. And it was like, I didn't know George. I hadn't worked with George and vice versa. And we started to sing and we started to work on something and we sang together for the first time and we both went, oh, because it was like this blend that was just so magic and and it never changed over all these years. It's never changed because we did it again. And um, when we when we started working on it, we did all the readings and all all of the different iterations of it. And it was. We, we knew we had something and it was something very excited that we wanted to work on. And so, and then we got Bob Mackey on board and, and George and I flew out and stood on his pedestal and had him fit us with clothes. And, and then we brought it into the Hausman, which is no more. And it was this wonderful 
oh my gosh, it was, I will never understand why it was not a huge, that's one of the ones I'll never understand why it was not a huge smash success because all through previews, the audience was, audiences were losing their minds and George and I were looking at each other going, oh my God, I think we've got something here. And then it opened and the New York Times loved us, but hated the show and called it cheesy in a year of uh, really cheesy shows <laughs> and, 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 and canned it. And so all of a sudden we're struggling to stay open. And I would just never, ever understand that. Uh, Cause I thought it was wonderful. I still think it's wonderful and it holds, it holds up. We did uh, a concert version of it at Birdland. And then during the pandemic, we, we filmed it for paper mill because they were filming shows and streaming them to their subscribers. And so we filmed it and it, it still stands. It's a great show. And so, and you know, if I could have somebody come and go, okay, I'm going to give you everything to do in a show that you do well. I am going to build this show around all the things that you do well. And here, go. That's what that was. It was it was like, oh my God, I get to do all the things I can do well. I get to I get to do all my vocal licks and I get to sing my jazz and I get to scat and I get, oh my God, I get to, get to do comedy and heartbreak and pathos and and so it was like this amazing, amazing, I've had so many great gifts in my life, you know, because that's another one I didn't have to audition for. I don't like to audition. So it's wonderful when people offer me things. <laughs> yes. And a lot of people feel like auditions are their chance to show them what you got, show them what you got, you know, but I feel like it's, it's really hard for me to audition. So I love it when they go, Hey, I know your work and I trust you and I'm going to ask you to do this. And it's happened to me a lot in this career. And so I'm really lucky, you know, uh, but that show was, that show was very, very special to me. I got to do it, you know, from the ground up, which was awesome. Yes. And a great role you got to do on tour was Mae West in Dirty Blonde. And what was the process like of kind of figuring out that role and maybe doing research and well, that was another one. You know, James Lapine came to see Pete and Keeley. And after it closed, he brought me in for his revival of uh, Into the Woods that he was doing. And he brought me in for Jack's mother. And I knew that that was a no-go because that I'm not right for that part. And I wanted to play the baker's wife, but they were going younger with the baker so they wouldn't see me for it. And so I went in and I sang anyway. And Paul Gimignani, every time I auditioned, and he's in the room, I kind of go, oh, God, because <laughs> he always wants me to sing Miss Bird. He thinks Miss Bird is the funnest song ever, and he wants me to sing it. And I will tell you that I love that song, and I love performing it, but it has never once gotten me a job, <laughs> except that day I sang it, and James said, well, you know, you're really not right for this. And I said, yeah, I know, but I just wanted to come in and sing for you. And he said, okay, well, you were wonderful in Pete and Keeley. And I mean, and I said, well, thank you, you know, and, uh, and he said, don't worry about the reviews. They don't know what they're talking about, you know? And I said, okay. And so I get a call that afternoon from my agent saying, James Lapine wants to know if you'd be interested in doing the national tour of Dirty Blonde. And I was like, well, yeah, <laughs> but I had just moved up here. We just bought a house up here in Westchester. I had a four-year-old and so it took some, you know, finagling. And so I was like, 
concerned about that. But I went, he said, they want you to come in and meet with Claudia Shear, the author, and uh, Gareth Hendy, who was the assistant director, who was basically going to be helming the tour. And so I went in and met with him thinking I was going to have to read and I was panic stricken. And I looked at him, I said, look, I haven't had any time to like work on the May voice or the May body or anything like, and, and, and Claudia looked at me and she said, oh, you don't have to audition. If James wants you, you're it. And I was like, okay. And so once again, handed to me and what Claudia wanted to open the Kennedy Center, which was the first leg of that tour. And so it gave me time to go down and watch her every night and then to run lines in the dressing room with the with the swings, who were both uh, Paul Amadeo and Kevin Carroll and both wonderful actors. And so and then have put ins and rehearsals with uh, Tom Reese Farrell and um, Bob Stillman. And so. My first show was the day after New Year's Eve. And so I and and I went on and, and, and I remember trailing Claudia because, you know, basically every time every time that character goes off stage, she comes on as somebody else, either a version of May or Joe, the other character. And so. I've trailed her backstage and after I trailed her backstage, I said, I quit, I quit. <laughs> Because it was crazy. It was crazy. She would go backstage and they would strip her and they'd dress her and then she'd stick her eyelashes on. And oh my God, it was crazy. And I thought, I can't do that. And for the first like month, every time I would go on stage, there was somebody backstage going, okay, it's this scene. Because it was like, you know, okay, I got it. You know, because I it was like, it was so crazy. The backstage was what was hard about that. The, the onset was a delight. And so much fun. And those two guys are the bomb. And we had, we romped all over this country that would, that would book us. It was, it was an awesome tour. It was an awesome tour. And they gave me like tickets for my son to come, you know, my mother would bring my son to the good cities and, uh, and we got two weeks off in between cities sometimes. And it was only like a six month tour. So it was wonderful. I loved doing that. That was really fun. So, you know, I, I don't have any complaints. I'm so grateful. I've done, I've had so many great gigs. Yes. And has there ever been a role that you've turned down? I'll tell you one. I'll tell you one. I was, I was doing Gypsy out, out on Staten Island and I got a call to come and do Love It in Sweeney, uh -huh. but they overlapped by a week. And so there just wasn't time. And so I had to say no to that. I hated saying no to that because um, I've always wanted to do that. And I think now they're going to be going younger with the role, it looks like. So um, so I don't know whether I'll ever get the chance to do a love it. And that makes me sad. But yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, I turned down everything after I had my baby. I turned down everything because mm. I, I wanted to be in the floor and play blocks for a while, you know. I waited a long time to have a kid and he is, you know, the love of my life. And so I wanted to be there for that. And so I turned down everything for a while. And so your last uh, Broadway show to date has been Steel Magnolias. And what was that kind of process like with standing by and with all those great actresses? I had, um, I had had two major surgeries back to back. And I 
wasn't working. And I thought, well, I want to stick my toe in the water. And I had been actively campaigning to play Truvy for years. And I heard they were doing a revival. And so I'm bugging my agents, bugging my agents. And they finally called and said, look, they want to go with a star. And I was like a TV star. And I was like, oh, well, who are they getting? They said Delta Burke. And I'm thinking, well, toe in the water, start back up again. I said, well, what if I stood by for her? Because I know she misses a lot. And uh, what if I stood by for her? And they said, that would be amazing. Would you stand by for Malin too? And I said, yes. I mean, I would never get seen for Malin, but I think I'm a, I think I'm, I'm a good Malin, a great Malin actually. And so I, I went in and I read for them. I didn't have to read for Truvy, but I read for Malin and they cast me on the spot. And then I didn't come into rehearsal for about three weeks. And when I got in, you know, they were, um, they were still working. And I remember that I was in previews and I'd never been on the stage. I'd never had a rehearsal. <laughs> And and a Saturday morning, the uh, Fitz, the the stage manager, called and said, "Sally, you're on." And I was like, "What?" <laughs> He's like, "I know." He goes, "He said Delta just she's sick and she can't do the show." And I was like, "Okay." And so I got on the train and I came in, and it was basically, I mean, I knew I knew the role. I just hadn't been on the set. And he, you know, he took me around and showed me everything, and I did okay. I it, and it was really fun, and it just. The only thing about playing Truvy, uh, covering Truvy was that every single time I was on, it would be like 7.30 and I'd hear thud because Delta's dressing room is next door to me. She'd passed out or she couldn't, have, she didn't sleep the night before. And, and, and they go, Sally, you're on. And so nobody saw me do Truvy. But like, you know, Christine Ebersole would say, oh, I'm going to be at a wedding and I'll be gone for a week. And so you have this week to go on and we'd have a put in and a rehearsal. And I, and so it was, everybody saw me do Malin. All my friends saw me do Malin, not Truvy, because I had advance notice for that, you know, but it was great. And those ladies, Frances Sternhagen and Marsha Mason, are the are such generous, giving, lovely actors. And I had a blast. It was Lily Rabe before she was like the big television movie star she is now. And she was so fierce and wonderful. And Rebecca Gayhart. And oh my God, they were all amazing. And so it was, it was another one of those ensembles where you're on stage. Because you know, that show to me is like you're bouncing the balloon. You have to keep the balloon in the air. And at the same time, you have to be aware of the great underneath, which is all of this emotion and all of this anchored Southern stuff, you know? And if you don't have the underneath, then it can come off like a sitcom because it's all joke, joke, set up, set up, joke, set up, set up, joke. But if you have the underneath with all of that stuff, then you have a full fat, emotional, rich show. So brilliant. And I had a ball doing it. I've done it a lot and I've directed it because it's one of my favorite scripts. I love it. I love Bobby Harling. He's wonderful, you know? So, um, yeah, yeah, it was a great experience. Yeah. And you mentioned playing Mama Rose and Gypsy and what was your process like with that great role? <laughs> oh, well, I had this period of time where I had done a couple of things in New York that I found to be very disappointing for different reasons. And I was just really burned out. And then my mama died and I just went, 
I'm done. I quit. And so I, and I was, and my son was at a point where he kind of needed me to be around. And so I thought, okay. And so I, I just quit. And I <laughs> sat on my couch for about six months and took care of my kid, did all the things you're supposed to do. And then I finally, I was waiting for the universe to tell me what I needed to do next. And the universe basically said, get off your ass and go back to work. <laughs> and so I thought, okay, I'm going to do toe in the water. I'm going to do something that's easy. And so I did gypsy. <laughs> <laughs> and I did it at a little tiny theater up here because I thought nobody will see it. And of course, all these people came on opening night. And then I got a call from... um Tamara Jenkins, and she had this wonderful theater company out in on Staten Island, and I'm not remembering the name of it, but uh, she just offered it to me again. And Bill Castellino, who is one of my loves, directed it, and and Marianne Lamb and Lisa Guida were co-choreographers, and they were they're both such great great girls and so talented, and the cast was great, and so I I did it, and Michael Morata played my Herbie. And we had such a run of that. It was so great and so much fun. And I don't ever need to do it again. <laughs> <laughs> it, I remember standing in the, they had me staying in a place out on Staten Island. And I remember getting up for matinee days and just standing underneath the water in the shower and just crying because my body was battered. I was so tired. My voice was tired. It's, it's a, that's a, mm. That's a role because you have to carry that sucker on your back all the way and you only leave stage to change costumes. So you have to be in it all the time. And, you know, one of the things that you always have to struggle with is when you're playing emotional characters is, you know, the emotion versus the singing, because if you get too emotional, you can't sing. And <laughs> And yet you want to play the scene honestly. And so there's always that like, you know, that balancing act with yelling and singing. <laughs> and so, you know, it was just, it's really hard and I loved every minute of it and it was a glorious production. So, you know, I, I, I feel like I was baby June. And so it has a lot of meaning for me. I mean, I, I don't think my parents made me do anything. I think I wanted to do it, but there is that part of me that is like, mm, I was just a little girl. I mean, really. And I always had my hair in rollers and I couldn't go out and play because I'd get sweaty and I had to wear these costumes that itched and I had to stay up late nights and, you know, and I missed school. And I mean, there were things about it that were hard and I'm not sorry for any of it now, but at the same time, I understand that feeling. And, you know, my mom was not a mama Rose. So, you know, uh, but boy, do I understand that character. There's something so hungry and so desperate about her. And, you know, like most characters, she operates out of fear, you know, so it's, uh, it was, it was a wonderful challenge and a wonderful, uh, a wonderful acting job to hone that part of my, of my talents. So I loved it. Loved it. And so I'd love now to turn to asking more about your cabaret and recording career. And what was it like to kind of balance that with being on Broadway and doing full roles? Well, you know, honestly, 
I, I've always sung in clubs. I started out in Texas singing with the group called Montgomery Mays and Stretch with Billy Stretch and Sharon Montgomery. And we were a big deal down there for a while. And, but I didn't want to be a trio. I wanted to just be me. And so I left the group and then sang in clubs. And what you did down there was you did three shows a night, three one-hour sets a night in cigarette smoke. And so, I mean, it's not for sissies. I mean, so by the time I was, you know, 25 years old, I knew the way that worked, you know. So when I moved to New York, that, of course, is something that I can do. And and Irv Rabel, like I said, I slept on his couch and he put me in his room. He said, you're going to work every Thursday night at 730. And I was like, okay. And, you know, I didn't know anybody and I didn't think anybody would come, but I got people to come and, and then I got the show, right? Like the, the Broadway show. And so it happened really, really fast. I was like three months in and that happened. And so I, and then I went right into another show. And so what I would do is I would do a cabaret act if I had something I wanted to say or if I had something I wanted to sing, or if I wanted to promote something, you know? And so I I would do, like when I was doing Welcome to the Club, I was doing Saturday Night Late Show, mm. just because. And when I did She Loves Me, I was doing Saturday Night Late Show to promote my Common and Green album, right? And I did a Common and Green show. And so, the, and, the, and the record companies, like, you know, Hugh Forden at DRG came to me, uh, Gosh, I think it was like around the time it was after Closer Than Ever and uh, right after I got married. And so he said, I want you to do an album. And so we did the Dorothy Fields songbook. Great. And, you know, half of it with Mike Renzi and half of it with Patrick. It was awesome and great musicians and great arrangements. And I'm doing a song from that album in the show on the second. Um, I'll do more later because there's a lot of good arrangements on there, but um, every single album, you know, they would just come to me and go, Hey, you want to do another album? And I'd go, yeah. And then Bruce, Bruce Kimmel from Finsworth, you know, I did the, I did uh, the Common and green and then I did the story hour for him. And then I did two for Peter Penny um, from Australia I did Valentine and Boys and Girls Like You and Me. And so I I, I would say to you that I would rather be in the recording studio than anywhere else in the world. I would rather be there than on a stage. I would rather be there than on Broadway. I would rather be in the studio. I love the studio. It's my favorite thing of all the things that I do. And I love it with all my heart. I always thought that when I stopped, I was going to open a little recording studio somewhere where and you know now everybody can have a recording studio in their house so I don't know how practical that would be but I still might do it because I love it I love everything about that studio scene it's always so creative and and warm and wonderful and not stressful and I love it and I I, I think I want to do one more album I have one more album in me I don't have a label hello out there I don't have a label <laughs> um but I want to do one more and I want to do my my stuff, you know, finally. And uh, so hopefully I can make that happen. It, but yeah, that was that was um, that was not 
hard. I mean, even if you're doing a show, which I was sometimes, um, the Common and Green, I was doing a show. I would just have a rehearsal with Patrick once a week and we'd go through the arrangements and then, you know, they send it off to an arranger. So Larry Moore did the arrangements and then we went into the studio, you know, um, on a day when I wasn't performing. And so it was, it was, it was, it, it, I never find that hard or tiring. I always find it wonderful. So it wasn't a hardship and it wasn't difficult. I just always wanted to do that. And then when I did the story hour, I had stopped to have a baby and I hadn't been working that much. And we did this, you know, and I had all this time to really work on it. And that made, I mean, I love all my albums for different reasons, but that may be my favorite because I think there's more me in that album than in any of the others. I think that that the song choices and the way that they were arranged. I mean, you know, Patrick and I were partners, but he did most of the heavy lifting with the arrangements, you know, but with that one, I had a lot of say. And so I really, I'm really proud of that album. And I also think it's a, a good example of a cabaret show, you know, for people learning, you know, so um, it's, it, yeah, I love recording. Yeah. Does that answer you? <laughs> Yes, it does. And so the final question I'd love to ask you is, with such a great career, what advice would you give to someone just starting out as a singer? Sing everything, learn everything, be a sponge, try to do everything that you can do. Try to sing everywhere that they let you have a mic and some places where they don't. Just it, the experience of standing on a stage and singing is very different than singing in your shower or singing in your car. And so everybody needs to do that. You know, I teach uh, singers down in Texas about a month every semester. I go to my old alma mater, University of Houston, and I teach singers to do what I do. And one of the things that I notice is, is they don't have the curiosity that I had. They don't, they're not like obsessed with finding out everything they can about this singer or this song or this performer or this show. And, you know, I had to go to the library and go on the microfiche or I had to watch the Tonys or I had to buy cast albums. You know, all they have to do is Google, <laughs> so, you know, and so it's like, I just don't understand. It's like, why are you not more curious? And so I'm, I think you have to be curious, 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 and, and just obsessed with finding out and learning everything that you can and never count yourself out. You know, I, I. It looks like I'm going to have another Broadway show and I thought I was done and it looks like that's going to happen, you know, um, so we'll see. Knock on wood. It's like, you know, I've been working on this show that my friend Scott Evan Davis wrote uh, called Indigo for like the last six years. And we had a production of it in Ohio and it still has some work that needs to be done. But I'm I'm absolutely confident that it's going to come into Broadway in the next couple of years. And so that's thrilling to me. And I would never have thought that in the world that that was going to happen. Another one that was just handed to me. And so you just never count yourself out and always sing, keep yourself in good shape, sing, sing, sing every day, because especially you start to get older. If you don't use it, you will lose it. So sing and be greedy and avid and curious. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. And thank you so much for doing this. It's been an honor to talk to you. Oh, honey, you're lovely. Thank you so much. It was great. I hope Oh, and come see the show, December 2nd, 9.30 yes. at the Green Room. <laughs> Are you coming? Yes, I'll be there. Oh, fabulous. Fabulous. Well, I will see you there.
Yes. Listeners, thank you for tuning in. Get your tickets to Now and Then at the Green Room 42. And remember to come back next time when I will be joined by Tony nominee Lainey Kazan. Lainey Kazan appeared on Broadway in The Happiest Girl in the World, Bravo Giovanni, My Favorite Year, The Government Inspector, and the original production of Funny Girl, where she stood by for Barbara Streisand. Her myriad screen credits include Beaches, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, and The Nanny, and she also ran a successful chain of nightclubs across the country. You won't want to miss that episode, so make sure to tune back in for that, and thanks for listening.